0: Well, I want to invite you, if you would, to stand to your feet. We're going to read scripture together. Been in cultures around the world where they give such reverence and attention to the scripture, and sometimes we can handle it flippantly, but I know that you're not a crowd who does that. And I want to encourage you to read out loud with me Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35 all together at this time. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen and Amen. You can take a seat. Would well, you're taking a seat, my name is Carl Gully, and uh, I'm from here in Waco, Texas. I like to say that I came to Waco before Waco was cool. Love this city. I'm a product of this city and a product of a lot of the churches of this city. I've been looking forward to sharing with you tonight, but I just want to be really honest. Today's been a very emotional day for me. I think uh, it just kind of hit me Next month is my birthday and it hit me that 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago, I was 18 years old. That was 1993. Most of you were not born in 1993, like me and Janet Ross and Charlie Ramsey were alive in 1993. Nobody else, you know, most of you weren't even alive at that time, which is pivotal for you to know, which means that something could happen tonight in your life that could affect your family and generations to come who are not even born yet. Because when I was 18 years old, I found myself at a crossroads, a crossroads of deep love for God and wanting him with all my heart and a deep love for my own life and the world and the passions of the world. And I was a man that was torn in between those two. And there at 18 years old in 1993, I found myself, it was at this spiritual event, this retreat type thing. And it was not an emotional moment like this is even right now. We just finished the most lousy game of church league softball, which is the worst competition in the world. And we're just walking off the field and I I just see the leader. And at that time, there was such a gap in my mind between who leaders were and those who followed God. And then the rest of all of us who couldn't really get our life to line up like those guys could. And I just remember running up to this guy and I just saw his burning love for God. And I just said, how do you do it? How how do you keep what you do going? I don't don't get it. We walked in the dorms and I remember we sat down on this bunk bed and he looked at me and he asked me a question that I did not realize would change the course of my life. We're just sitting on a bunk bed. He looks at me and he says, Carl, I have a question for you. Will you give the next five years of your life to learning how to hear the voice of God. And I paused for a minute and I thought, number one, I've not planned the the next five weeks, not much less the last next five years. Number two, I don't think you heard me rightly. I'm asking, how do you turn into someone like yourself who keeps that burning love for God alive? And I'll never forget, he just paused and he looked at me again and he said, Carl, I want to ask you again, from this moment, will you devote the next five years of your life to learning to listen for, discern, and to obey the voice of God? That was a seminal moment in my life. He got up, he just went to dinner. And I just sat there on the bunk bed and I couldn't move. I, this was not a cute little church camp altar call. I was sitting there and it was like God himself had just said, There's no maybe here. The answer is either yes or no. And I knew that this answer was going to cost me something. And I remember just sitting there, not even going to dinner and just waging war in my head. Like, am I going to actually say yes to this question? And I think the reason it's been so emotional for me is just realizing the the effects this has had on my life and also realizing it's not always been so easy. And tonight, as we come to the last night, as leaders, we're already hearing people say, how do we keep this passion going? How do we keep this excitement going? And I just wonder if that's not the right question. Because it's not really possible to keep intense spiritual emotion like this going at all times. But I wonder if from the very back to the very front, from seniors, juniors, sophomores, freshmen, I wonder if the question we need to ask ourselves is, will you give the next five years of your life to learning to, dis- to listen for and to discern and to obey the voice of God. And I've been in tears kind of all throughout this day because realizing it's not been perfect. But Lord, thank you that you've given me grace and that I happen to stand up off that bed and say yes. I'm asking you that same question tonight. Now, let me just tell you, should you say yes to this question, it will require that you develop a ferocious love for scripture because that's the primary way God speaks to us. It'll mean that you'll seek out mentors, but you'll walk in community because that's another way that the Holy Spirit speaks to us. And it will mean that you will hear these promptings from the Holy Spirit that will line up with scripture, but still will make you say time and time again, is that really you, God? and you'll beg that it's not God, and then you'll go, okay, I think I'm supposed to do that. You'll step out, and God will just smile and say, watch my girl go, watch my guy go, and then you'll probably blow it, and you'll get back up again, and you'll go, am I gonna do this again tomorrow? And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. For me, the reason I was so slow to answer this question is because I knew some Bible stories. And I knew that there was never a place in scripture where God came to someone and said, hey, I've got something for you to do, and it's going to be really easy. Maybe you could help me. You could go to a place in Scripture where God said, hey, I want you to do something, but this will not cost your reputation anything. Because as I looked through Scripture, I saw that Noah was called to make a boat during a drought, but told that one day a flood was coming and he'd be good. Elijah was told, go get all the prodigals and fire's going to fall from heaven. Gideon, your outnumbered army, I want you to shrink it down. And don't bring weapons, bring jars and torches and blow trumpets. Esther, go to the king and plead on behalf of your people. Just know that the last time it didn't go so well when that happened. Hosea, marry a prostitute, knowing she's going to leave you repeatedly. Peter, drop your family business and walk away and follow me. Mary, hold my son in your womb, though you are not married and you will be looked on and scolded and scorned, but you'll hold the son of God in your womb. Paul, go to the nations, go to the Gentiles. And I saw all these and I was just realizing, if I answer yes to this question, it could be the thrill of my life, but this will cost me my life. And so at 18 years old, I sat on that bunk bed, and the fear of God gripped me, and the love of God gripped me. Until that moment where I could stand up and say, God, I'll spend the next five years of my life devoting myself to listening for your voice, discerning what is your voice, and obeying your voice. I'm so grateful I did. Those next five years were filled with so many amazing moments that were thrilling, but cost me my life. Like when I was at the Farrell Center for a sporting event and I felt that voice, go preach the gospel to that person across the way that you don't know. And I was like, I'm in a sporting event. I don't want to do that. Or the time that the Holy Spirit said, go to to the parking lots at night and pick up trash. It's like, what? but God was developing a hidden life in me that wasn't going to be public. To go and repent to girlfriends that I had crossed lines with was not something that I wanted to do. It was awkward conversation making stuff. But God was asking, do you want your reputation or do you want to be a clean man before me in my eyes? Carl, don't go to the college of your dreams. Instead, stay and invest in every 7th through 12th grader who wants discipleship and say yes. Yes. Would take That voice would take me to Central Asia to spend a summer preaching the gospel among unreached people groups, and some of you are hearing that whisper even now, and that's something that you'll be doing as well. And that voice is also telling me constantly he loved me and he enjoyed me, which was really hard for me to believe, but so beautiful. I didn't know it then, but God was inviting me to move from this casual Christian who went to church all the time and had church friends and knew church stories. He was inviting me to up close and personal to a heart that was wholly his to be a disciple. And if you were with us last night, that's what Janet talked about. Going from being the casual follower of Jesus to the diehard disciple that is up close against his face, constantly wanting to hear his voice. And not just saying, I'll give this a go. Like next five years, I will devote my life. Like I will Pour my heart in that trajectory. And so we're gonna take this passage apart verse by verse because I believe the Holy Spirit's inviting you and all of us again to make that kind of commitment tonight as we come to a conclusion at FM 72, the FM 72 life is just starting. And so we'll take this verse apart as we see in Mark chapter eight, verse 34, it says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Again, do you see the delineation there? The delineation between there's a crowd and there's disciples. The crowd are the Christians. They're the people that come to stuff. They have Christian worship in their phone and a few worship playlists. They go to church. They at least signed up for a small group at the beginning of the year, whether they win or not. They're just, they're just good, good people. But for most, what those people have done is they've, they've checked off the box of the minimum requirements requirements required and needed in order to get into heaven. And they've done that, but they've not taken the deeper plunge into discipleship. And I love what Dallas Willard, if you know him, author, pastor, and philosopher once said, he said this, the greatest issue facing the world today. Think about that. What are all the issues going on in our world? All the heartbreaking needs of injustices around our planet He says, the greatest issue is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. And I saw this and I saw that delineation so clear. We only see the word Christian used a few times in scripture. The word disciples used 260 times. And that makes sense because we're not always clear what a Christian is in our world. we got kind of a, an idea. But in the first century, everybody knew what a disciple was. It was a discipleship culture. Everybody knew what it meant to be a disciple. And it was a pretty clear pathway. There were four things that you did if you were a disciple. Number one, you would be with your rabbi. Most people, they would leave their home, they would leave their family, their businesses, their city. And they would just want to follow their rabbi around wherever he went so that they could glean from him, learn from him. Whatever he said, they wanted to be there to capture that moment. In other words, they had said, I'll give the next years of my life to hearing what you say. And they would absorb his teachings. It was was an oral culture. Many illiterate people. So they had to hear it over and over again until they themselves could repeat it. And then they would go do what he says and do what he told them to do. So if he said, go forgive your enemies, they went and did it. If they saw him praying for sick people, they prayed for sick people. If they saw him fasting, they would fast right alongside with him. And like we heard last night, the answer was always before rabbi you even speak, my answer is yes. And then they would hope that they would hear those, those amazing words that was reserved for a few. Now you, you go make disciples." Again, this was the Jewish culture. Everybody knew that. Jesus knew that as well, but he's about to throw them a curveball. And we see this in the next part of verse 34 when he says, "And Jesus said, "What's that word?" Next word. And Jesus said, "Whoever wants to be my disciple." Another version. If anyone wants to be my disciple, Jesus is throwing the Jewish world order upside down on its head, confusing people in a drastic way. You've heard this so many times, you're like, yeah, I know. I know that verse. But there would have been people who've been standing there nudging their friends going, did he just say whoever? Like anybody can come and do this? Now, Again, in the first century, there were three levels of schooling that every Jewish boy did and only Jewish boys did. And after the first round, some made it to the second round. After the second round, some made it to the third round. Very few made it to where they could be a disciple. So so we can't imagine how strange that seemed when Jesus comes in and goes, no, whoever. And someone was like, even the girls? Like, could a girl actually be a disciple? I mean, we don't really even let them in the synagogue sit over with us. What about the kids? Their braids aren't formed yet. Jesus says, let them come to me. I I mean, again, I don't know you understand how wild and radical this whoever word is. Rack my brain to try to paint this picture. Anybody here been to sing? Anybody else? We're big sing people in my family. Maybe a little too big. My, my my wife went to Baylor. She was in sing. My daughter's a Pi Fi. She was in sing. Got a son. We, we just got, we're really into sing in our house, okay? So any anybody in sing, you did sing. Any sing chairs here? <laughs> Y'all have laid your life down. Okay. Sing chairs. Just lean in with me. Imagine the process you went to to become a sing chair. So you like maybe did a solo You're, you know, pig your freshman year or something, or your sophomore year. And then you, you know, get brought up to the front row. And, and then you actually get to sit in on some meetings and y'all do pretty good your junior year. Your senior year, you get to be a sing chair and you finally made it. You're racking your brain, watching every YouTube video in the world about how you're gonna do this. We're working on theme development. We're working at costumes. We're figuring all this stuff out hours and hours. And then someone comes up and says, if I could have your attention, please. Whoever wants to be the Pi-Fi sing chair next year, come up here. And it would be as silent as it is right now. And Charlie Ramsey goes, I'll do it. Everybody's like, Charlie Ramsey? He's a guy. He's like not in college. Whoever wants to be the KOT sing chair, come up here at the end of our time. And a bunch of boys would be rushing the stage going, what are you talking about? How would you let that happen? And these MCC and TSDC guys go, okay, we'll do it. Like, they don't go to Baylor. How are we gonna let them do this? And so people start meeting. If you start letting anybody do the sing chair position, you're gonna muddy the waters. You're gonna dumb it down. We're gonna lose the power of our organization. And people are looking at Jesus going, you can't let them all in. There's people out there that don't even know the books of the Bible. They're perverted. Their families are jacked up. You can't let them in. And Jesus says, no, I said, whoever wants to be my disciple, come up here. And he's inviting the surrender to come forward. That is the beautiful gospel message that Jesus looked at all of us and said, you can't climb the moral perfection ladder and arrive at this position and then receive the kingdom of God. You are a broken person, a sinful person, and you deserve the penalty for that. And Jesus came along and said, I will deny myself. I'll pick up your cross and I will go to the cross and die taking your shame, your sin, your disgusting filth on me but then I won't leave it there, I'll come back to life. And in his resurrection would overcome death itself and give all, us a chance to experience abundant life. And then he stands there, that's the beautiful gospel story it says, whoever wants it. And for a person like myself, I needed that message because I came from a very broken family. My mom had us in church all the time. My dad was an alcoholic. And I just felt like I lived in those two worlds, a person who wanted God and is prone to addiction. I didn't even even go to Baylor, but I'd come around and be like, it just feels like everybody here has it all together. I guess I'm the only one who doesn't. And I remember in high school, even coming home one day from church, we had just walked in the door from church. And there's two things I see out of the corner of my eye. I see my dad passed out and there's vomit on the ground. And behind me, a family from church unexpectedly showed up at our door. And I remember at the same time telling my mom, as I'm a high school student, I'm like, "Mom, stall." So she's out on the front porch trying to keep the church family out of our house so that they don't see our dysfunction, they don't see our addiction, they don't see what we are trying to hide. That nobody, we don't want anybody to see this. And I'm in there cleaning the mess up and taking my dad back to the bedroom. And I'm coming out to engage the church people, and I'm like, "I'm a fraud." There's no way I deserve to be a part of the kingdom of God. Those people that like speak and lead and disciple people, that's just not me. My family's broken and I just don't, there's no place for me in this, in this world for Jesus. So you can't imagine how much it meant to me when the following year, a guy named Sean, he's just a few years older than me, we started hanging out and he just started encouraging me and building me up. And he said eight words that forever changed my life. So simple. He just looks at me and he goes, Carl, something in me clicks with something in you. Very minor eight words to you, but to someone who felt broken and addicted and dysfunctional to know that someone out there saw me past my hidden sin and my brokenness and said, I see something inside of you was a game changer for me. It was a a whoever moment for me. And he's like, would you want to start connecting and meeting for discipleship? I didn't know what that meant. But we would get together and he would ask me about my intimacy with God. My time was with the Lord. We'd worship and pray together quite a bit. And then he would ask me about the things going on inside of me. And we'd read scripture and I would say my struggles and confess my sin. Things I never had told anybody before that I didn't want anybody to know. And then he would, we would talk about making disciples. How do we go and we make disciples? And he just would mess with me. First, one of the first times we're together, we're at Taco Bell. And we're just gonna sit down and talk. And I turn around and he's sharing the gospel with the guy behind us. And I was like, bro, it's Taco Bell. I mean, we share the gospel at church and eat tacos at Taco Bell. Let's keep those separate. But he was showing me, we're bringing the kingdom of God is bringing these worlds together. And some of you have lived that way where you've lived dysfunction family here, church over here. Do the God things on the mission trip here. Go to Taco Bell and live that life here. But discipleship is when God invites you to do something different, to integrate those worlds. And that one was beginning to transform my life, and I was beginning to see this is so beautiful. And, man, this is a challenge as well. But that's what the next part of the verse says. It goes on to say, Jesus says, My disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. My disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. We shared about this some last night, about denying yourself, meaning to repent, to go away from your own way into the way that Jesus would have for you. Some of you have been calling out for revival. Who's been crying out for revival? Anybody? We got some people crying out for revival? I have two, And I, I know this is what I know is studying revivals throughout the years. No revival is started apart from a move of humility and repentance. Any revival move that has happened started there. And most revivals started with young people who are willing to do it because all my age group people wouldn't do it. And so this generation could be the generation where revival starts. But I wonder if this revival word and this disciple word are tied together. At least it was for me. Because to deny myself means the Holy Spirit begins to speak to me and lead me. And I'm like, this does not make sense. For me, it was graduating from high school and doing a discipleship school. And I had two friends open my door and say, do not do this. Like you do not wanna go to school, be a year behind everybody. And I've heard you can't date for a year, don't do it. And I was like, yeah, that's really been working for us. You know, that's that's been a real blessing so far in high school found myself in this school. We're memorizing scripture every week. We're going out to the inner city. We're going to places and, and preach the gospel. They took us to sixth street in Austin and we were preaching the gospels. These guys were running past me yelling, we smoke pot and we like it a lot. And I'm like, what is my life? You know, my friends are at college and they're just like practicing singing and I'm trying to stop the pot guys and see if I could get them to tell about Jesus. We have this time where we start studying about revivals. I didn't know much about these. Revivals are just a weak thing you went to, but revivals, moves of God that swept across the world. And I start studying about revivalists and I I think maybe God could do that again. He could fill stadiums. Maybe he could use me. And in the midst of that, I read about these two revivalists, George Whitfield and John Wesley. And George Whitfield in the 1700s was one of the most amazing preachers. They say he preached probably 10,000 times to 18 million people. He would go city to city to city, just blow up towns with the gospel of people getting saved. Meanwhile, John Wesley, he wasn't as good of a preacher, but he could preach, and he did some good things. But he moved so slow, he'd go to one city, he'd stop, and then he'd look for those one or two people who were hungry, and he'd start spending time with them. He put them in what he called societies, these small groups of community and discipleship. And he started doing this long, sometimes mundane, painful, yet beautiful transformative work called discipleship. Towards the end of his life George Whitfield said this quote and I read it and it just stung me. He said, "My brother Wesley acted wisely. The souls that were awakened under his ministry, he joined in societies and thus preserved the fruit of his labor. This I neglected and my people are a rope of sand." And those last three words, rope of sand, stung me and I thought, "Am I going to live my life for a rope of sand?" even just big events. Is that what I'm going for, Lord? And I thought, am I really going to come to the end of my college days and go, Lord, here's my intramural championships. It was all for you, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, here's all the girls I flirted with instead of making disciples of men. What am I going to stand there? And I thought, Lord, I don't want a rope of sand. Because today there's no Whitfieldites, but there's Westlands all over the world because one guy said, I'll look for one person and I'll do the long, sometimes mundane, painful, but beautiful transformative work of discipleship. And I want you to hear this tonight because a lot of us are saying, how do we keep the feeling going? And I don't think that's the right question. In fact, some of you are so excited that our first thought typically is, I need to go find a mentor. Everybody lean in. You do need mentors. But I wonder what would happen if 2,000 people tonight walked out of here and said, I gotta find some people to disciple. I need to find some lost people who don't know Jesus and pour my heart into them. I need to start showing up every week to that group that sometimes I've said I would go to and I've been like twice this whole year. Like I'm going to give my life to making disciples. My prayer is you will marry your love with revival with your love for discipleship. Maybe that's how the revival comes. I was so excited about revivals. And then God says, I want you to deny yourself and make make disciples. It's like, okay. So I went to my local church. This is what all you should do. I went to my local church, it was Highland. And I went, I said, hey, how do you make disciples? And they gave me five junior high boys. I was like, fine, I'll start a revival with five junior high boys. And I prayed for revival. Somehow all they wanted to do was talk about girls and video games and sports. So they gave me a Disciple Now and I thought this could be it. Revival's gonna come at Disciple Now, this little retreat thing. But they also gave me this guy named Furman. And Furman the entire time would disrupt every single session talking about all the ways he was gonna dunk on us. He's like four foot tall. And he has, he, he's got a Glock he's gonna pull out later. Let me see it. No, he, and he's just disrupting every single session. And I can't get to the revival because I'm, my disciples are screwing it up. We get to the last session, you know, the emotional one where you light the candle, we all commit to God. And I'm like, now revival's gonna happen. And Furman caused such a problem. I did what every responsible leader does and I locked him out of the house. So he's outside of the house. He's running around banging on the walls. And he's like, Carl, let me in. I'm going to use my Glock. And I'm just like, I, I was like, God, I signed up for revival. You gave me Furman. And I literally, you know, it's bad. I sat down and my junior high guys got around me and they laid hands on me. And they were like, God, just help Carl. Help Furman. Help Furman. I walked out away from that disciple now. It was an absolute disaster. And I said, never mind, God. I'll go to my Bible study. I'll go to church. I will love you. But this long, mundane, beautiful, but painful, transformative work of discipleship, give me the stadiums, God. Don't give me the junior hires. But I had committed that I would give five years of my life to listen for, to discern And to obey the voice of God. And in that listening place, I felt like the Holy Spirit whispered to me, that's all it takes. You had a guy not believe your words. You had a guy deny you. I had one of those too. You had a guy betray you. Welcome. God was asking me to step in. Remember those four traits of a disciple? I believe these are the four traits you're wanting to walk out of here with tonight. Number one, say them with me. Be with Jesus. Number two, number three, do what he says and does. Number four, go make disciples of Jesus. I don't know if you caught it or not, but those are the four components of something we call the Great Commission. And you've heard this too, I bet. And if you haven't, welcome to this beautiful invitation and read it along with me. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, it says this. Is it up there yet? Therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I wonder if God is calling you tonight to say, I want to be his disciple, but then I want to go make disciples and we're going to start revivals. Who do you look for? You look for the hungry. You look for the one who signs up and says me. You look for the one who needs you. You look for the one who says, I'll obey his call. Again, I'm hoping all of our college pastors get overwhelmed, people going, I'm supposed to make disciples. What do I do? And if so, you'll get a couple people here and there that you're just like, I can't believe that happened. Because God gave me Forrest, I mean Furman, but he also gave me a guy named Forrest. Some of y'all probably heard of him, Forrest Frank. He does a song, couple songs on, on, online. So for us, I met him in high school. I invited him to do the discipleship group. He, he said no. And for two years, he was out. And he was kind of just living his Baylor life, doing what he wanted to do. So you imagine when I'm at a prayer time, and I'm praying for all these students up at the front, and I come up, and there's like Forrest. I went, you know, I just kind of kept moving. And I walk up later. I'm like, what happened? And he's just like, man, me and my friend are just saying, we're just ruining our life. We're just throwing it away. We need to go for Jesus. I'm like, man, that's awesome. Let's talk sometime. We were leaving the next day for a mission trip and I get a call from my assistant. Hey, what do I do? Forrest Frank just walked onto the bus. He didn't sign up. He didn't go to the trainings. He didn't pay. He just brought his bags and jumped on the bus. I was like, well, I guess let him go. I don't don't know. And so he goes and he starts preaching the gospel and he, he starts getting into discipleship groups. He came back and we started meeting every week, talking about, well, how's your time with the Lord? What's going on internally? how are you making disciples? He started pouring into other people. And I look at what's going on now. I'm like, the world sees a, a songwriter. The world sees an, sees an influencer. I see a man who was committed to the long, boring, mundane, painful, beautiful, transformative work of making disciples. And I just wonder if tonight, that's the invitation God's wanting to give all of us. Is that the, the call? For some of you, You actually need to do something similar to Forrest. Your whole reason of being here tonight is that you just need to kind of go, I'm in. I'm just gonna go jump on the bus. I don't even know these people. I'm just going. I'm jumping in with people. I'm following Jesus, no matter what it takes. And I wonder if Forrest would be like, was that a regretful thing? Ask anyone who's ever said, I'll give five years of my life to following Jesus if they said that was a regretful thing. Verse 35 explains why it's not. Because whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Meaning you come to that moment 30 years later and you go, Lord, I almost bailed so many times. I almost quit on Jesus, almost quit on the church, quit on myself. But by your grace, I leaned in because I just wanted to know you. I wanted my whole heart to be yours. And Tonight, as we bring this time to a close, I had a sense that the Holy Spirit He's going to be doing several things. For some of you tonight, I want you to hear me say, he is saying whoever to you. And you're like, no, you don't understand. I need to go get get my sin in order, and then I'll get saved or baptized. And God is saying, no, tonight's the night you need to say, my life is fully yours, Lord. I surrender to you fully for the very first time. For others of you, you've held back a bit, and tonight's your night to say, I'll be a disciple. But for many of you, you've already done that. Tonight, you're going to have to make the decision, will I be a disciple maker? Will I make disciples, wherever that takes me, across campus or across the country or across the world? But I believe it'll start with all of us answering that question. Will we give the next years of our life to learning to listen to, to discern, to obey the voice of God?